have a few texts I want to read before we'll be in our main text. We'll be in Exodus chapter 5. But I'd like to read to you two texts from the New Testament. First, from Matthew 11, and then from 1 Peter 4. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. we find Jesus speaking, and he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I ask you that you would wake us up to the truth of your word this morning. We'd be alert to it, knowing that our life depends upon hearing with faith your word contained in your scripture, the very gospel that gives us life. We're born again by a living word from you, and may you keep us alive as we keep our ears open to your word. Lord, take your spirit and use him to make us aware of what we need to know this morning and believe. Wherever there's complacency in our lives, strip it away from us so that we would hear soberly your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Those two passages present to us, in a sense, a striking contrast that we live, almost a paradox that we experience in our life. We have our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, whose yoke is easy and burden is light, and he calls us to come to him and to follow him, knowing that he will give us rest for our souls. And yet, we also are aware that following him entails a life of tribulation. We are called in 1 Peter to not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon us. So we have a Savior who's gentle and lowly, and we have a life that is full of fiery trials. And these two coexist. Our text in Exodus chapter 5 shows us, in a sense, this coexistence of fiery trials and a God who delivers These themes run throughout here. It leads the characters to scratch their heads as to what kind of God they're following. But at the end, we find that God is a God who delivers. We find this in our life that we get our hopes up for a deliverance that we would long to have come to us, something that would relieve us of great pain or suffering or agony. And we find perhaps that that agony is actually compounded rather than being delivered from us. And we wonder what in the world is going on. We know that we have a Savior who gives us rest from our 
our labors. And yet we find that sometimes he leads us into situations where it's not very restful. These themes, again, run through Exodus 5. I'd like to run through this text with you. First, we'll take it just to explain and make sure we understand this story. It's not very complicated. It's fairly straightforward. And we'll work through it paragraph by paragraph to make sure we understand what's happening. And then we'll step back and try to draw some lessons from these difficulties that attend our lives prior to the deliverance that we desire. So first, this story of Exodus, chapter 5, is broken down in five parts. Part 1, Moses and Aaron meet a proud Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron meet a proud Pharaoh, verses 1 through 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that, we, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. We find at this juncture in Exodus that God has already met with Moses. He's called him to be the deliverer of his people who are enslaved in Egypt. Moses and Aaron together, who are brothers, have gone into Egypt, have met with the elders of the Israelites, showed them the signs that God gave them to do, and the elders believed, and the people worshipped, realizing that the Lord had visited his people and had seen their affliction, and now they expect deliverance to come. The next scene is that Moses and Aaron, we don't know the interval, but the text promptly leads us to Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh. And if you're tracking along with the hopes of the people, you might think this is going to be a breeze. They've seen the signs that God has done. Moses and Aaron are equipped and called by God. And now they go to Pharaoh with the power of God at their back. But we see what happens is that they meet a proud Pharaoh. The request that they give to Pharaoh is really a demand They speak in the name of the Lord as they say, thus says the Lord, that common refrain of the Old Testament as the word of the Lord is proclaimed. Thus says the Lord is a declaration that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is making a demand of Pharaoh. These are not the words of Moses or Aaron. These are the demands of the living God. It's a demand to let the people of Israel go so that they can worship the Lord. That's the central purpose of this exodus, by the way, is that the people would be delivered so that they could worship God. That's the request that's made. The response from Pharaoh is a response of a proud man. And if you were in his shoes, you'd likely be proud too, because Pharaoh was regarded as a god. He was the god there who reigned from the throne 
over Egypt. Lowercase g, of course. He had absolute authority in Egypt. It was expected that all would serve him. He would tolerate no rivals. And when he gives his response to this request from Moses and Aaron, he shows that he does not tolerate any rivals. He defies God. He answers with a question. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? His response is not one of ignorance only. It's of defiance. He defies God to prove himself to be one that he should listen to. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Pharaoh doesn't think of himself in any situation where he has to in any way listen to this God, Yahweh. It's not just that he doesn't know Yahweh, it's that he refuses to know him, refuses to submit to him, and thus he opposes God's plan and his people. His response of a rhetorical question makes a strong point. Yahweh is no one that he thinks he needs to be submissive to. And this builds the tension in the story because the reader of Exodus, that's us, should know very well who Yahweh is. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the one who has made promises that he intends to keep. And no one is going to get in his way from keeping those promises. So who is the Lord that Pharaoh should listen to him? Well, we could give him a little insight about who he is, that he should listen to him. He's the one who is not going to be defied. But we know a bit about Pharaoh, too. He thinks that no one will get in his way of ruling his kingdom as he sees fit. And so, the battle is on. This is really not Moses and Aaron against Pharaoh. It's really God against Pharaoh. The battle is over the Israelites, a people that God claims to belong to him and a people that Pharaoh claims to belong to him. And so who is going to win this battle? Well, you know where Exodus goes, so you know who wins. But this is at least Pharaoh's first response. He is obstinate. He is proclaiming ignorance, a defiant ignorance. He does not need to know this God because he himself has all authority. And so Moses and Aaron give another request in verse 3 declaring that the God of the Hebrews has met with us and requests to go a three days journey into the wilderness that they may sacrifice. And there would be a great price to pay if this doesn't happen. There will be pestilence, swords that would come from the Lord. This is basically a rephrasing or almost a word-for-word quote from what God gave Moses to say in 3.18. So Moses is following through with what God has given Moses to say, and again, the central focus is worship. And the consequence is, if this is not followed through with, pestilence or the sword, that is death. So Moses and Aaron warn Pharaoh from the outset that no one will escape the wrath of God if these demands are not met. Oh, Moses and Aaron receive a response from Pharaoh. He says in verse 4, why do you take the people away from the work? Get back to their burdens, to your burdens. Pharaoh thinks that all Moses and Aaron are doing is distracting the people from their 
labors. They're just getting in the way of what should really be done, which is brick making. This is a whole waste of time. Bricks could be made right now. Get out of here. Get back to work. There are lots of people, Pharaoh seems to think, lots of Israelites, lots of slaves. They should be working, not worshiping. Bottom line, Pharaoh is not budging. So that's part one. Moses and Aaron meet a proud Pharaoh. Part two, mean old Pharaoh makes things worse for the Hebrews. That's verses 6 through 14. Verse 6 says, The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? This encounter that Moses and Aaron have with Pharaoh awakens something in Pharaoh. Kind of provocative meanness that comes upon him. This passage reveals to us something of the structure of of the Egyptian government. You have Pharaoh who's in charge, and then you have these taskmasters who seem to oversee all of the slave labor, and then they set up these four men who are responsible for making sure that the slaves do their work. It's like a department of forced labor that's in action here. There's a bureaucracy in the government of Egypt that's working to make life hard on the Hebrews. Their job, the Hebrews had, was to make bricks. This was because the Egyptians would have been furious in their building projects. They'd be building things like palaces, storehouses, military installations, administrative buildings, official residence. And these buildings all needed bricks, millions of bricks. And there were no brick-making machines. There were just slaves. The brick-making process is well known. There are murals of it found in certain places in Egypt that shows slaves making bricks. These are archaeological discoveries that comport with what we see here in Scripture. Slaves had a taskmaster over them with whips. The slaves would have to go and gather dirt, mix it with water, uh, fill it in with straw, knead it together. The straw would act as kind of a substrate that would keep the, the, the brick together. And then you would put it in a mold, put it out in the sun, let it dry, and now you'd have a working brick. Millions of times this would happen to create the amount of bricks that were necessary. 
There were demands on the slaves for how many bricks they needed to make, a quota they had to fulfill each day. And from what we understand of the oppression that the Hebrews experienced, it was not an easy quota to fulfill. It wasn't that they clock in at 9 and by noon they have their quota done and the rest of the day is just for drinking lemonade in the sun. The quota itself would stretch their abilities. And as Moses and Aaron come to request a time to worship the Lord, and Pharaoh denies that request, he sees an opportunity to make things all the worse on the Hebrews. Pharaoh is convinced that worshiping God has arisen because idle minds have too much time to think about other things than making bricks. They have time to think about things like worship. Slaves who are doing their jobs shouldn't have time to think about worshiping this God, Yahweh. And so Pharaoh concocts this strategic, disheartening tactic where he would demand the same quota of bricks from the Hebrews and yet eliminate giving them straw so that they have to go and add a task to fulfill their quota. They have to go and gather straw. They have to go out through the land, find any kind of stubble that they could gather up and then still make the same amount of bricks. Not only could the people not go and worship the Lord in the wilderness, but now they were scattered throughout Egypt trying to fulfill an impossible task. They could not do this. If they are stretched to fulfill the quota at the start, then when you add in another complicating factor, there's no way they're going to be able to do this. The foremen of the people who are likely Hebrews had the job of overseeing the Hebrews and make sure that their task was done. It would be, uh, in a sense, a cushy job. They're in management. Not that management is necessarily cushy, but in the sense of contrasting it with manual labor of making bricks, it was the easier job. But they became the ones held accountable to see that the slaves made the amount of bricks required. And they're held to account, they're questioned, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? And they're beaten for it. This is a disheartening tactic to make these Hebrew slaves do an impossible task. The cruelty of Pharaoh is on display here. He doesn't let them worship, and he makes life harder for them. It's part two. Mean old Pharaoh comes up with this plan to dishearten the Hebrews. Part three, the Hebrews ask for relief and find none. Part 3, the Hebrews ask for relief and find none. Verses 15 through 19. Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task, each day. 
course they would go and ask for help. This is totally unreasonable what's being demanded of them. And so these four men go to Pharaoh, get an audience with him, create a credible account of what's going on, how it's an impossible task, and request from Pharaoh relief. They're saying that the fault is not in the Hebrews, but in the Egyptians making this demand upon them. Any reasonable leader would see that this was a totally unreasonable task that they were supposed to accomplish. It should shock us, however, that the Hebrews cry out to Pharaoh rather than to their God. They go to Pharaoh, who is not a reasonable leader, who is not merciful, who is not acting in rationale that would be to the Hebrews' advantage. They cry out to Pharaoh. And the whole of this part of Exodus is the setting up of a competition between Yahweh and Pharaoh. And when they go to Pharaoh, they get cruelty. They get no help for their case, even though they make a good one. The Pharaoh is proud, stubborn, and hardened of heart. And so he denies relief, and he blames them. He turns the victim into the one who receives the blame. Pharaoh's response is simple. The reason that you're not able to meet the quota is because you're lazy. Think about how much that would sting. Working your hands raw in the heat of the Egyptian sun, and they're claimed to be lazy. They want to go and worship Yahweh, according to Pharaoh, as a sign of their laziness. Pharaoh just wants them back to work. There's no time for worship. This people does not belong to Yahweh. They belong to Pharaoh, and so they need to work as though they belong to Pharaoh. The foremen aren't stupid. They realize they're in big trouble. They're not going to be able to meet this quota. And so they realize that they are in big trouble. They're dead men. If they can't do what Pharaoh says, there's only really one consequence for that. That's death. Part four, Moses and Aaron get blamed. Moses and Aaron get blamed. Verses 20 and 21. They, that's the foremen of the people, met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. When you find yourself in a predicament, you look for someone to blame. And look who's here, Moses and Aaron. And so they get blamed. In fact, they get so blamed that the foremen call on God to judge them. Sure, things weren't good before, but they are a lot better than they are now. And what's different between then and now is Moses and Aaron had to stick their nose in the business of the Hebrews. For Moses and Aaron, you can sympathize with them. They have nothing but good intentions. They're looking to help deliver the people out of slavery, and now they get accused of making it worse. Everyone's sore about this. 
the four men do realize that they're in big trouble and they want the Lord to recognize Moses and Aaron have brought the trouble on them. They've made them a stench in the sight of Pharaoh. And this really is another head-scratcher because, in a sense, the four men are right. Things were a lot better before Moses and Aaron were there. Things weren't great, but they didn't have death hanging over their heads. They didn't have a quota that they could never fulfill. And Moses and Aaron tried to intervene, and they just make things worse. So they get blamed. Part five, Moses questions the Lord. Moses questions the Lord. Verse 22, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses gets blamed. Moses blames the Lord. And again, you can see this making a bit of sense because it was the Lord who called Moses to go on this journey. So Moses asks these two cutting questions. First question, why have you done evil to this people? That is a bold question to ask God. Why have you done evil to this people? Can you imagine asking that? Maybe if you're in Moses' shoes, you could. We're not better, different than Moses. We're of like passions as him. Put in that predicament where you are sent to deliver a people and your act of deliverance only complicates things so that the people you seek to deliver are now in greater trouble as a result. And you know that absolutely God is the one who sent you to do that task. Who else do you ask this question of? There's no one to ask other than the Lord. Maybe you wouldn't put it in these words, but you could come because you're so convinced of the sovereignty of God, you know and believe the sovereignty of God so much that you know a certain disaster that has come could have been prevented by him. And it wasn't. And so who else do you have to ask? We can't go in so far as to say that the Lord has done evil, for he cannot sin. And so Moses' question goes to a degree that perhaps he ought not to go. But in Moses' situation, he knows the Lord is the one who called him to go. The one who gave him those words to say. And so he goes to the Lord with this question. The second question is, why did you ever send me? What's the point? Why did you send me? Things are so far worse. What's the point? And then Moses makes two statements both that on the surface appear to be true. Verse 23, since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Well, that's true. Since he's come, that's all that's happened. Pharaoh has concocted evil. 
The second statement is, you have not delivered your people at all. And from Moses' point of view, that would be true as well. They're still in slavery. They're in worse slavery. Deliverance, it seems, has not come at all. Well, it's the story. What lessons can we learn from this? What can we draw out? I think we could frame the whole thing in this way, that there are difficulties before deliverance. There are difficulties before the deliverance. But here are some lessons that we can learn from this. Lessons that we can learn from Exodus 5. The first one is, Jesus delivers from slavery. Jesus delivers from slavery. I'm taking this, the fact that Exodus is painting a picture for us of slavery. An untainted picture to show just how awful slavery is. You can't go very far in this text without seeing how cruel a situation this is. Israel's been dealt the heavy blow of enslavement, making bricks, and then the impossible task of making bricks while they have to gather their own straw. We have the picture of this cruel taskmaster and Pharaoh, this awful, evil man who rules over his slaves unrelentingly. So here's this vibrant picture of slavery. And we have to interpret Exodus within the context of the whole Scripture. And the whole Scripture is clear that there is another kind of slavery that exists. Solomon says in Proverbs 5.22, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. There is an enslavement to sin that exists. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6.20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. He acknowledges that there's a slavery to sin. Peter says in 2 Peter 2.19, They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Speaking of false teachers, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And Jesus says in John 8.34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Perhaps the distinction between slave master Pharaoh and slave master sin is the Hebrews knew that they were enslaved to sin, but many who are, the Hebrews knew they were enslaved to Pharaoh, but many who are enslaved to sin don't realize it because sin pays with a diminishing return of pleasure that culminates in death. Sin offers and makes good promises to us that it can't fulfill. And it tells us to keep coming back for more. And yet it doesn't satisfy it. All of us, either now or in the past, ought to know that sin has ruled us. We are bound to us. Sin ensnares us and we cannot break the shackles ourselves. We are utterly enslaved to it. Just as the Hebrews have really no recourse 
from their slavery. There is no deliverance that can come to them from their own strength. There's no deliverance that can certainly come to them from Pharaoh. They have to look outside of themselves. We have to look to Jesus Christ, the one who rescues and is so distinct from Pharaoh that he says that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, that we need to come and learn from him and we'll find rest for our souls in him. Or Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15 describes it this way, that the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise took, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus Christ is the only one through his death and resurrection that can deliver anyone from enslavement to sin. Paul cries out at the end of Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The answer to that is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The whole of Exodus, while a true event and true history, is also a portrait for us of the delivering God who rescues us from our slavery. But first, you need to know just how enslaving sin is. Just because you're not making bricks does not mean you're not enslaved. The second lesson that we learn is that God is an ally to his people in need. God is an ally to his people in need. Consider for a moment how preposterous this whole scenario looks to Pharaoh. There's this people that is under his thumb, the Hebrews. And two 80-something-year-old men come into his presence demanding that the people be let go so that they can worship this God that Pharaoh doesn't know. And Pharaoh's response is, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? Perhaps Pharaoh thinks any God who would ally himself with a people that is enslaved, is some worthless God. And yet there's something so insightful, so something so counterintuitive about this whole thing, so, so contra the ways of the world, we learn that God is not a God who allies himself with the strong, but a God who allies himself with the weak. It's a lesson that we find again and again that God is willing to place himself among the weak and the lowly, the burdened and the burned out. He's a God who allies himself with those who seem least likely to have his help and yet most in need of it. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen says, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is a lesson that we learn again and again through Scripture. 1 Corinthians 1 talks about the foolishness of God as wiser than men and the weakness of God as stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God allies himself with the weak. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, let the little children come to me. And he's using them as a picture of disciples who consider themselves lowly. Let the, little children, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And again, Matthew eleven twenty five to 26, Jesus prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God allies himself with the candidates who seem least likely for his alliance. We see that as Moses and Aaron come in the name of the Lord for his people, Third lesson we learn is that the word of the Lord will remain forever. The word of the Lord will remain forever. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Then look at verse 10. The taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it. This becomes a competition between thus says Yahweh and thus says Pharaoh. And whose word is going to stand? The the Hebrews are in a point in their real experience where it looks like Pharaoh's word is going to stand and Yahweh's word is going to fall. But if you just read on a few more chapters, you will realize that Pharaoh's word will fall and Yahweh's word will stand. It always, always, always works that way. Yahweh's word will stand. Which will prevail? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The fourth lesson we learn is that trials reveal our expectations. Trials reveal our expectations. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14 is the text I read earlier. Hear it again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 John 3.13 Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Things had not turned out as Moses had expected. Things had not turned out as the foreman had expected. It seems as though they thought that as soon as they spoke the word of the Lord, that was it. Game over. Battle won. But they find that Pharaoh doubled down on his oppression. And so they turned to the Lord with complaint after being complained at by the Hebrew foreman. Jesus warns us 
of a shallow response to the gospel. A shallow response is one that immediately receives it with joy because it's really good news, but doesn't realize that the whole message of the gospel is contrary to this world, and so the world is going to oppose it. So no wonder Pharaoh opposed the good news that God is going to deliver his people. Jesus says, Mark 4, 16 through 17, in the parable of the sower, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. We have a God whose wisdom is so transcendent that he uses trials to test us, refine us, strengthen us, and pave the way for a great deliverance. And so we should not be surprised that things do not turn out according to our human expectations. They turn out according to God's expectations. Sometimes harsh trials reveal that we think we should have it easy, reveal that we think there should be no speed bumps, no potholes, no detours, no red lights, no traffic stops, no other cars, no other passengers. We just get a free ride. It's not the way God designs our life. Will your root be deep in the gospel, realizing that the world opposes the gospel? And then finally, the fifth lesson is that delayed deliverance lets us see the power of God. I haven't read to you really the key verse of chapter 5. The key verse of chapter 5 is the first verse of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Of his land. The point of all of this was that God would get victory over Pharaoh in an unmistakable way. It would reveal his power. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are you willing to live a life that will endure hardship, that will endure trials that you would not delight in for the sake of letting God's deliverance be all the more powerful and all the more great? If you abide in him and trust in him, you will see his power is great. You will see his deliverance is mighty. His word will stand fast. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we want to trust you in the midst of the trials of our life, knowing that you use them to refine us and to prepare us for a deliverance that will be great. Lord, let us trust in you and rely on you with all of our heart. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.